1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today we are honored to have Dr. Helen Yaffe with us. Uh, Dr. Helen Yaffe is a senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow, um, and she teaches economic and social history. Uh, She's here today to talk to us about a wonderful book and a very, very high-profile and famous book she wrote in 2020 called we are Cuba. How a revolutionary people have survived in a post-Soviet world. And the book was published by Yale University Press. Uh, Helen, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you. Thanks for the invitation.
1: There are a lot of misconceptions, uh, a lot of uh, misunderstanding about and a lot of misinformation about Cuba. And so we are hoping to learn a lot about Cuba from you today. Uh, but before we start, can you please tell us a little about yourself, uh, how you became interested in uh, your field of uh, your, your expertise? And also, how, what was the story of this book, how this book came about?
0: So in terms of my disciplinary background, I'm, um, I've studied economic and social history. And I went to the University of Bristol to do that. And, and in fact, before, <laughs> before I went to university, i just finished my A-levels, which is the pre-university exams we have in the UK. And um, my sister has said to me that she was already at university and she was going to take a year out and go and live in Cuba. So um she'd studied some GCSE uh, very basic level Spanish I had none and this was 1995 so I decided to take a year out before going to university and go with her so it was me and my big sister and we went to Cuba in as I said 1995 which anyone who's listening who knows a bit about the history of Cuba will know that that was during what's known as the special period, the special period in time of peace, which is the name that was given for their severe economic crisis, um, which was a result of changing relationship with the Soviet Union and then the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist bloc. And in this period, 1991 to 93, Cuba's GDP plummeted about 35%. And so, you know, things like uh, the fall in investment and in trade was, you know, 86 percent, 87 percent. And, you know, Cuba's a small island nation, has limited resources and, you know, generally quite low productivity and so on. So it depends on trade, you know, and uh, it, if you cut off it, your trade overnight, what you have is a severe economic crisis, which has the impact of, you know, A famine, a war, uh, some other catastrophe, which is what where you expect to see the the kind of fall in GDP that we saw in Cuba. So (laughs) there we are, sort of teenagers from the UK. We turn up in 1995. The situation has been turned around very quickly by the Cubans. Um, It's quite a remarkable story about how they recovered from that severe economic crisis, not completely at all. And in many ways, the special period has not ended in Cuba. But in the you know the immediate emergency, they managed to um, to alleviate that uh, crisis. And we were there in 1995. We stayed till '96. We um, lived in Havana. We were there before you know Havana was full of uh, uh, other young people from around the world, um, young and old. Now you know coming to Cuba for its rich culture, its sunshine, and you know to learn about its history firsthand. And and for the people. Um, And we hitched around the entire island and um, really got to learn a little bit about what socialism is, or at least what socialism is in Cuba and why it was that these people were, you know, as a, in general, as a population had decided that they were happy to stick with the system that they had, while the rest of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union um, had quite suddenly and dramatically uh, transitioned back to capitalism. So, yeah, it was just an incredible experience, you know growing up in central london um a uh, uh, highly consumer society to go out to Cuba where uh, most people were protected by i mean Cubans are protected by ration books, so at least they could go to the the warehouse the bodega they call it on the corner and get their supplies that we didn't even have that so we depended on whatever you know was we were lucky enough to see turned up in the fruit and veg market but if you didn't go with a plastic bag then you were in trouble because the the rice farmers would just pour the rice and if you didn't have a bag to catch it that was just too too bad so you know this was a coming from you know as i say, consumer. London in the 1990s to Cuba where uh, biros, you know, pens, plastic bags and all these things were like treasures that you cling on to, you know, make sure you recycle. It was um, incredibly mind opening and, you know, like taking uh, most of what we knew and turning it upside down and um, very, very rich experience and obviously left me with an appetite to understand it intellectually, historically, in terms of ideology and politics as well, which is what I then went on and, um, and did when I had the opportunity first to study my master's dissertation and then my PhD. So my PhD was at the London School of Economics um, in the Economic History Department. And it was about the work and um, ideas of one of the 20th century's most famous Characters, Ernesto Che Guevara, but in an area of his life and work and contribution that was more or less in the English language, uh, barely known, and that is his work as a member of the Cuban government for six years, um, as president of the National Bank, minister of industries, and many other roles, and um, trying to find out, you know, what it was he was doing, and really discovering quite extraordinary information about this unique system of economic management that he developed for Cuba for transition to socialism, which was inherently a critique of the Soviet political economy. Um, and also, you know, really sort of trying to draw back on the roots of uh, Marxist analysis of the, it's very complicated, but the uh, the operation of the law of value and its role in capitalism, how do you uh, surpass that, but also looking at the very concrete conditions in Cuba, which had very sophisticated, um, um, you know, some technology and management techniques and so on and try working out how you could use some of those but within a different framing so not within a capitalist framing but a socialist one so that's another story but uh that that was the first sort of um serious study i did in cuba about cuba um and a topic that um you know that was a a contribution to knowledge in in a real sense uh
1: that's a fascinating story and i can't even imagine how transformative and opening that experience that one year must have been for you. Uh, and you brought up a lot of important points, which we'll uh, talk at a little bit more length uh, and a little wide. Uh, can you tell us in the first place, give us give us a, a little bit of background as to the Cuban Revolution. Why was there a revolution in Cuba and what was the political and economic landscape like in general before the revolution?
0: So the Cubans uh, you know Cuba was one of the few um colonies of Spain in the Americas that didn't get independence in, around the um 1820s as the rest most of the Latin American countries did um and you know it it became a the world hub for um sugar which also meant for slavery because uh, slave labor was um, used to operate in Cuba and it continued um to basically the end of the 19th century as a colony of Spain but the cubans you know were determined to fight for independence and they actually had free um independence wars during the um the the last quarter of the uh, 18th century or the last part of the 18th sorry 19th century um, but the United States intervened, as probably all of your listeners will know, with the after the explosion of the main ship, and they occupied the island and, and refused to leave unless the Cubans accepted something called the Platt Amendment, um, which put serious constraints and conditions on Cuba and gave the United States control over its foreign policy and uh, development in many ways. So... The Platt Amendment, the new Republic of Cuba, you know, signed this into their new constitution. And it meant that for, in the view of, of Cubans who um, were in favour of independence, it meant that Cuba was a semi-colony of the United States. So you often hear the term pseudo-republic, and that's the, the reference, right, because it wasn't truly independent. Um, then in the the following decades, there's a massive influx or i mean there's already serious u.s interests in cuba and a lot of sugar was being traded uh sold to the into the united states and in you know in return for other products foodstuffs and and um, other commodities from the united states you know even while cuba was still a property of spain however in the following decades you know the u.s control over the productive infrastructure in Cuba, the means of production, um, increases massively, and and then you get to the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression. And like with the rest of Latin America, there's a, a retraction of a lot of U.S. capital, but the um, you know the the structural problems remain. Cuba is uh, highly dependent on sugar, so uh, sugar accounts for something like you know 80 of exports, and then most other industries are somehow related around sugar. Uh, where there are other things like they have free oil refineries, they're owned and controlled by um, foreign companies, mainly the United States, but also Britain. There's Canadian and French interests there as well, banks and so on. So the struggle for um, the the, the revolution in Cuba was also a struggle for real sovereignty, um, which we should understand as having control over a country's resources, and the way that the, the nas- national wealth can be used to be um, invested in, in the well-being of the population. And that was very much on the agenda of what was known, what became known as, known as the movement for the 26th of July. That was the revolutionary movement led by Fidel Castro. Uh, Raul Castro was also a member from the outset. Um, che Guevara joined this uh, revolutionary movement. Why did they exist? They existed in response to um, the coup carried out by Fulgencio Batista in 1952. It was, um, some say, his third coup because there was a, a very complicated political system pr- previously where uh, it was certainly his second coup. He'd been involved in a coup against the new revolutionary government, which was briefly in in power. It's known as the Hundred Days Government in 1933. So a lot of people don't know this. There was a revolution in Cuba in 1933 in the context of the Great Depression where there was a very tumultuous response throughout Latin America. Um, In Cuba, half of the sugar mills, uh, there were Soviets set up by the sugarcane workers who were very militant and also huge in numbers because the country was dominated by sugar production. So um, Batista had carried out another coup, very much with support and encouragement from the US establishment. And unlike a previous his pre- previous period of reign, both at the front and behind, because he was sort of the strong man behind with nominal other pe- presidents in place. And this time he was extremely brutal. Um, and there wasn't the sort of populist element that his reign had had in a previous period or, you know, in or, or elections, um, which had happened as well. But um, Batista had overseen the introduction of a new, fairly progressive constitution in 1940. Um, anyway, so, uh, yeah, the 1952 coup was met... Uh, gradually because not immediately by resistance starting with students radical students of course um, Fidel Castro was involved in their student movement at the University of Havana he was already participate working rather as a lawyer trying to um, help some of the poor constituents around Havana in the, in the poorer areas um, and he was taking cases against Batista for corruption he was ali- allied with a man called Eduardo Chibas who was leading a new party, which is the main um, purpose was to to expose corruption. But when you have a country where uh, most of the productive activity is controlled by foreigners, it limits the channels through which the national nationals can get rich. Um, and, you know, be part of the elite. And so in a way, it um, absolutely embeds corruption and patronage and graft and all the rest of it. And that was very much the situation in Cuba. So, um, I mean, there's some extraordinary statistics, you know, 90% of railroads were owned by the US capital and 40% of electricity and so on and so forth. So when you you add these figures, these uh, factors together, you have the economic situation, the political situation, and the situation I haven't yet mentioned, which is the social situation. So absolute extremes of, um, of, you know, wealth and income. So, you know, many people turn, uh, they criticise the current Cuban revolution on the basis that statistically Cuba had the third highest GDP in the region in the 1950s. And look at the ratio of Um, cars per person and so on but you know Cuba was really marked by inequality so in the countryside you had something like over 40 percent of the children were running around with parasites in their bellies yeah no shoes and living in wooden huts Um, access to medical care was um, so difficult outside of Havana Um, and It was also, you know, racially biased. There was still a lot of segregation. Um, Racism was institutionalized. So, you know, you had 100,000 prostitutes in Havana um, and they weren't getting medical care. So there was extreme inequality. um, And one of the things when I was doing my interviews for the first book about uh, you know for people who had worked with very closely with Che Guevara and Fidel Castro and I was asking them about their involvement in the revolutionary movement and also you know why what motivated it and many of them would tell me that they were they were from well-off families yeah they were all right but they just couldn't accept you know the kind of poverty that they would see whole families living in the streets and so on and so forth so um the Social justice is another very strong element that has driven that battle of for Cuban independence, and you know the movement against uh, the, the revolutionary movement and carried on since. So I think that those two elements, sovereignty, real genuine sovereignty, and social justice, are the key factors behind the Cuban revolution and while many policy changes or decisions might be hard to compute from other frameworks when you're looking for rationality in terms of what produces GDP growth or, or you know, what is a sensible political uh, foreign policy in order to not, um, you know, be considered a pariah state or upset the United States or or Europe or whatever. But actually, when you Um, Look at the relationship of those policy decisions and so on in relation to these two factors, sovereignty and social justice. Things make a lot more sense.
1: This was one of the most comprehensive and most straightforward descriptions of Cuba uh, before revolution. And I must say, you did mention uh, uh, some statistics, I I wish we could go through. There, that. there One of the fascinating things about this book is that there's a lot of good statistics in there which can put the situation into perspective, the, uh, the economic and also the social situation of, of Cuba into perspective for uh, listeners. Uh, let's talk about... Uh, the immediate actions that happened after revolution. And I do like to know if the revolution was a socialist revolution from the very outset, or it became a socialist revolution later on. And also, what were some of the immediate actions that happened after revolution? And also, maybe you could talk about, because you earlier mentioned uh, Che Guevara's role in, in, in the government. Uh, he, you put into place a, a very effective economic system, so can you talk about these points, please? It's, it's <laughs> yeah. a lot, I know.
0: <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot. And so, no, the Cuban revolution wasn't a socialist revolution. It was a revolution, a multi-class revolution against dictatorship, Um, But it had, uh, I mean, there were different revolutionary groups as well. Um, There were civic groups and political groups, but there were three main revolutionary insurrectionary groups involved in armed struggle. So that was the movement for the 26th of July, which I mentioned. Then you also had the um, student movement, so very very radical armed student movement. And then you had, and this took some time before they joined in, but the um, the Basically, the Cuban Communist Party, known as the Partido Socialista Popular, the Popular Socialist Party, um, and what happens is there's um, all sorts of positioning and maneuvering, and uh, eventually those three groups start to coordinate from 1958, and they, you know, they come together. So when the revolution happens, it's in the name of those three revolutionary groups, um, and it's not a socialist revolution it's a it's an insurrection against batista but when you factor in um, those two those two key elements the uh, desire um, the absolute determination to achieve sovereignty and social justice the logic of those two positions lead cuba increasingly um, into a position against U.S. imperialism, that's necessary to fulfil the the requirement for sovereignty, which leads it into a position against the domestic capitalist class, whose position is entirely linked to and dependent on U.S. imperialism. Um, and then, of course, there's the question of you know the the social. Uh, socioeconomic situation produced by the current, you know, relationship with the United States through having a capitalist system through the role that it has. So in some senses, by um, absolutely maintaining sovereignty and social justice as the key, you know, goals for the revolutionary movement, I would say it was almost inevitable that they would come into conflict with um, US establishment US imperialism and then capitalism within Cuba and um, so I mean for example the the movement for the 26th of July had a program right and its program included uh, issues like you know we will we need people to be housed we need people to be uh, educated and so on now how do you do that when the the, the wealth Profit is so concentrated in the hands of um, private profit-seeking individuals. where you can only attack their interests. And in doing so, you are uh, transforming social relations in the country. So, you know, there is, a, there is a, a debate. And some people who write about the Cuban Revolution, who take a very uh, one-man view of history, as I see it, a version of things, you know, they, they try to find evidence that Fidel Castro was a secretly a communist... Some argue that he was and he manipulated everyone. And then you have people who fought alongside um, the who were members of the revolutionary uh, movement and then subsequently even members of the revolutionary government, you know, Felipe Passos, who was the first um, president of the National Bank. And then when the um, Fidel Castro uh, is announcing that we're, you know, um, first of all... We're working close, more closely with the Cuban Communist Party, the PSP, and then announces that, uh, you know, more radical measures, the nationalisations and so on. These people leave and they say the line is that that Fidel Castro has um, and the movement for the 26th of July has betrayed the revolution that they fought for because they never fought for socialism and there's a lot of people in in that position so you know there's the, the idea that he was being manipulative and he was playing you know they use these uh, terms about salami tactics and all the rest of it then there are those who say no no Fidel Castro had no ideology <laughs> his his real motivation was power he just wanted individual power now Personally, I can't think of a harder way to get individual power, right? Then um <laughs> You know, then all these attempts at revolution and being, you know, hiding in the sugar cane while helicopters are looking for you to shoot you. And then, <laughs> I'm sure that given Fidel's status in the 1950s, he had married into a very wealthy family. Uh, he would have found a if his pursuit was for power, he would, could have found a much easier and quicker route together. But that, those are one of the interpretations. And then the idea is that after the revolution, um, Fidel decides to uh, ally with the Soviet Union, because it will keep him in power uh, because he's falling out of the United States, so I think all of that is rubbish i I mean it may or may not be that in the process of the revolutionary struggle, uh, Fidel Castro was increasingly uh committed to the idea that only socialist development could solve the problems in Cuba, these structural problems we 're talking about. It may or may not be that that decision came. In 1961, when it was announced that actually, you know, what we are doing here is building socialism. Um, I, I don't think it particularly matters. I think what matters is the, the clear argument that for the um, revolutionary movement to fulfill the demands or the promises made in the Moncada program and as part of the program of the revolutionary movement they were necessarily going to come into conflict with the capitalist system. And, um, you know, there is no third way, especially not in the context of the Cold War. A small island state is um, in the Western Hemisphere, the first country to declare itself socialist. Uh, They were not going to be able to, to have some sort of third way. And I think a third way is only a transitional, you know, stage before you you pick one way or the other. So they were, um, I mean, certainly propelled into the decision very quickly. Um, But in terms of like my own, I mean, it's also clear that um, Raul Castro was a member of the Cuban Communist Party. Um, uh, Che Guevara was, um, you know, had declared himself, A communist, so that clearly other leaders within the movement were openly um, recognised as communists. But um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I think I think the this is the the interesting point is like how the you know what what you have from Fidel Castro, and I and I as I said, I'm not one for the one man version of history, but it's a sort of principled intransigence. Yeah, and they were not prepared to compromise on their desire for those two elements, real sovereignty and social justice. And they just saw that, that um, this was not going to be possible under capitalist social relations and that the only way it was going to be possible is if there was collective ownership over the national resources, which means that the wealth. Um, in order for it to be distributed in a much more equitable fashion, to deal with that terrible inequality that existed in Cuba, and also to have the capacity to control the land and resources and move away from this terrible dependency on sugar, which was um, very much associated in Cuba with a ter- uh, you know a a, um, a terrible historical burden of colonialism of spanish control spanish humiliation or humiliation at the hands of the spanish and slavery this terrible brutalization of of human beings so those were i think key um aspects the this in answer to a question was the revolution socialist in its nature perhaps in its nature if it was going to be consistent with the goals that it said then it was necessarily Going to have to take a socialist development path.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I was uh, myself. I I did not know about this before reading your book. So I thought that yeah, from the outset, it was a socialist revolution. And um, you mentioned that they one of the one of the values of the well, ideas of the revolution that they never compromise what the social justice. And that's something we'll talk about how economic how, what 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 measures they put into place with the economic pressures and if they compromise on, let's say, the public health or public education. But that's something we'll talk about later. And again, one of the things that I thought was true was that uh, Cuba was completely dependent on Soviet Union, especially that they made a big enemy uh, out of the United States. Therefore, the friend was Soviet Union. And I thought that they were completely dependent on them in, in their economic plans. But you do talk about how they decided to gradually pull back from Soviet model and they put into place their own model. What was that model like and why did they decide to pull back from Soviet uh, model?
0: So, I mean, I think you're referring to the period known as rectification from the middle of the 1980s. But just to say, I mean, prior to that, there were, um, what do we, I think I said five different economic management systems put in place in Cuba before the collapse of the Soviet bloc. So you can see that there's variation. What's behind the variation? Well, immediately after the revolution, and this is referring to a question about Che Guevara's role, well, yeah. um, and yeah. he was uh, briefly the the president of um, the national bank after this guy who I mentioned, Felipe Passos, mm. left, um, condemning the you know the direction that it was going in, too radical, too communist, and so on, um, and uh, Che Guevara took over there. But he was also simultaneously the head of the Department of Industrialization. So this is a country that had never had a Ministry of of, of Industrialization, Industry, or anything like that. That was a department within the National um, a new institute that they set up, the um, uh, National Institute of Agrarian Reform (INRA), uh, where you know the offices were run by people in guerrilla uniforms and and so on and so forth. So then um, Che goes on this trip around what's now called what was subsequently called the non-aligned movement country so he goes to visit um, the only socialist country he goes to on this trip is Yugoslavia which has already uh, effectively broken away from the Soviet Union and the Soviet model Um, but he goes on this trip he goes to Egypt he goes to um, uh, Japan various different places and he's Looking at their industries, different sectors they develop, and he's really infused. So he comes back to Cuba, and he gets named Minister of Industries. So they're going to create this whole new ministry. And in the Ministry of Industries, he now has the possibility, the sort of policy-making possibility, to try something new, which can embed his critique of the Soviet, the way the Soviet Union is, uh, or the Soviet system of uh, um, economic planning and management, Soviet political economy, essentially. He's already got reservations, and maybe part of that is from going to Yugoslavia and seeing you know, that they have a critique of the Soviet Union, but he's also studying Marx's capital, and he's reading in Marx's capital that the operation of the law of value is fundamental to the capitalist system right? It's a fundamental law. And that leads to, you know, the commodification of labor. So people only work when they're, uh, um, you know, for in exchange for money. And to put it really simplistically, and then he goes to the Soviet Union, and he reads their manuals, which were obviously bought to Cuba, and thousands of Soviet advisors are brought to Cuba. And, you know, they're saying, oh, we need to use and develop the law of value. So he sees a contradiction there, how can we develop something which is fundamental for driving capitalist uh, productive relations and so on? And so he starts to critique this. So then there is that those are the sort of theoretical drivers for him creating this new economic management system. At the same time, they have practical problems. Right. And they um, overnight hundreds, literally hundreds of workplaces, Um, sugar uh, plantations are being nationalized. And some of them are like, you know, sort of artisan shoemakers. And they're, they're, you know, very specific. And some of them are highly skilled, you know, these refineries and IBM machines and all the rest of it. And um, they have to find new people to replace the management, the private management in these places. You know, thousands of Cubans, the the one million cubans who ran the country are leaving in those few years the first few years after the revolution and who are who do the revolutionaries have well they have illiterate or semi-literate you know uh, people from uh, the countryside from the the urban poor the urban proletariat and they have to learn to manage all of this productive infrastructure so it's an incredible challenge one of the things they do is they try to work out, again, influenced by how the US corporations run, they um, w- uh, developed this system called the budgetary finance system. And actually, some of the people I spoke to who, who developed it with Chase said, oh, this was based on you know information I gave Che about how they work how these US capitalist corporations work and it's to do with the fact that they have a, a headquarters and then they have subsidiaries but when there's a transferral of either finance of funds or um, a transfer of goods they don't make payments so they just do it as a sort of uh, accounting um, movement on on the books and he was looking at that and he was also looking about how they have quite centralized approaches to management as well so you know you'd only send out specialists to somewhere where it's needed and and all the rest of it and so he was thinking how can we adopt some of those efficiencies to the cuban context and actually in um, in the scenario that i've described where you have a complete shortage of experts complete shortage of resources this was really helpful. It was a pragmatic or practical solution to those challenges at the same time. So, uh, you know, then it also fits in with the idea of, if you can have a relationship between the headquarters and the subsidiary where goods are transferred, but we don't have to have a commercial transaction. So one doesn't have to sell to the other and make profit. Well, actually maybe we can apply that to socialist enterprises. So, you know, when you pass on um, some material from one enterprise to another, it doesn't, they, we should remove the commercial uh, relationship and just say, look, if Cuba is considered as one big factory, then there's no need to make profit from ourselves. We we don't have a change of ownership of commodities, yeah, because Cuba is one owner, Um and, you know, Marx talked about a commodity needs to be it, it needs to be a good that changes ownership. Yeah. So he was trying to experiment with this. So uh, this is a really short, long way, rather, of saying that Che Guevara developed the budgetary finance system um, within the Ministry of Industries. But simultaneously, other ministries in Cuba in this period. So we're talking about 61 to 65. They were um, adopting A system, or they were using a system which was an adaptation from the Soviet uh, economic management system. And it was known in Cuba as either economic calculus or auto financing system. So already in 61 65, you have two competing systems operating at the same time. Now, when I asked about this, I was told that Fidel Castro's approach was to stand back from the debate because there was an ongoing um, theoretical debate that was all very public. It was all published in uh, ministry journals and so on. It was called The Great Debate, and it took place between 1963 and 1965, and even some foreign Marxists got involved in that. And Fidel Castro's attitude was apparently to stand back and let them experiment and let them debate. And then, you know, we could, the idea was we could then assess which system was working better. So this goes on and then, um, you know, Che uh, leaves Cuba in 1965. He goes off to Africa. It wasn't known until, you know, much late in the 1990s that he'd gone to fight in the Congo um, and then subsequently in Bolivia where he was shot, caught and then shot. So in the interim, um, there is a decision to introduce a new system in Cuba to try and bring these together. And this system is called the registry system. But it's a very poor interpretation of Che Guevara's system. It clearly didn't understand the importance that he'd given to the role of cost accounting, inventories, administrative controls. It got rid of all of those. So there was more or less chaos in the Cuban economy in terms of economic management. At the same time, they had this huge campaign to try and harvest 10 million tons of sugar, record record harvest it would have been and it was ultimately with um eight and a half million tons harvested but uh what you have then is a poor economic situation which then um leaves the cuban uh government to to conclude that it has to adopt the soviet system which is a tight ty- tried and tested system is um you know will help them to organize it will help them to uh to systematize their economic system so that's what they do so they, then in the 1970s you have the adoption of the soviet system of economic management then you get this critique which you refer to as um uh, as coming. This is rectification from the mid 1980s, and actually, the first signs of this are in around 1982, when in speeches, Fidel Castro starts to criticise some of the expressions of what he sees as as, as coming from this system. So, what we're we talking about, we're talking about bureaucracy. We're talking about people being more concerned with with um, production of values, i.e., you know thinking more in terms of profit rather than the social function of what they're producing and how, you know, how to meet needs, social needs and so on. Um, He starts to complain about a distancing between the, the people of Cuba and members of the communist party or, you know, the leaders of, of, um, uh, workplaces and so on and and so the way that I read that is that although he 's assumed you know Fidel Castro, the great dictator, he was able to do what he wanted, and everything that happens in Cuba is at his whim, actually, for those of us who've studied Cuba and seen how policy comes around and decision making happens, they have a far more collective system. And my reading of it is that actually Fidel Castro was trying to win the consensus within the leadership and from the population that a complete U-turn was necessary. Finally, that happens in around 1986. And you have what's known as um, the rectification of errors and negative tendencies. So hence, people just shorten it to rectification. And it is a declaration that they are um, completely changing, they are abandoning the the, you know, Soviet um, system of planning and management, and they are going to, and in the words of, you know, Fidel Castro, very openly, we're going to go back to Che. We're going to go back to what Che Guevara was saying. If only we'd listened to his warnings, because the other aspect that I talk about in my book, in both of the books, is how um, Che Guevara was convinced that the Soviets' hybrid system was leading them back to capitalism. And, in fact, before he left Cuba, he wrote an incredibly um, concise declaration of his analysis or his view and sent it to Fidel Castro. So Fidel Castro was well aware throughout that period when they had the Soviet system, he was looking for the signs that Che Guevara had warned him about. So in the that mid-1980s, you know, um, there's a, an incredible speech that I would encourage everyone to read that Fidel Castro makes on the 20th anniversary of Che Guevara's death, which is in 1987, and he says, you know, if only we'd listen to Che, Che would be turning in his grave if he saw that it's taken us 10 years to build this hospital in Pina del Rio. And he's in, you know, he's inaugurating a hospital. Um, you know, if it, if he could see how long it will take us to build all the daycare centres or uh, nurseries that we need for our children. You know, at this rate, by the time the the ones who have children today, um, you know, by the time the nurseries are built for them, they'll be... <laughs> Getting their, their pensions and retiring. I mean, he says all this, and and he says, you know, we have people producing stuff which has no social use, but it's meeting targets. Yeah. So, you know, they that's just totally lost the um the social justice element of of the of the revolution. So what do they do? They pull away from the Soviet system, they go back to the kind of revolutionary mobilizations of the early 1960s. So they get people into Micro brigades and they'd like shock troops setting up, building these nurseries, building the hospitals, building housing, and then members of the of the micro brigade, you know, also participate and then get a home. And so they're dealing with things in this totally, you know, chaotic but beautiful revolutionary manner of getting things done. And so that was rectification. And also, I was told, you know, Fidel Castro. Uh, had Chase warnings, he could see what was happening in the Soviet Union. The break with the Soviet Union actually began much more gradually than people realised. Um, the Soviets had already said that they were going to break, uh, though they had already broken off the preferential trade agreements, the prices that they gave to the Cubans. They'd already said, you know, that... Um, Things were going to shift to sort of market exchange rates, world exchange rates and so on. So uh, the Cubans, I mean, it was going to be catastrophic for them, uh, whatever happened. But they were perhaps prepared. I don't know. I mean, uh, another guy I interviewed who was, um, you know, in the Ministry of the Economy and Finance, subsequently became a minister, said when Fidel Castro came out in 1989, so the 30th, Um, anniversary of the revolution and he made a speech where he said if one day and we hope this will never happen but we should wake up to the news that the Soviet Union has collapsed we in Cuba will carry on fighting, we will carry on resisting and he he says that this came like a, a lightning bolt a shock to all of them that Fidel Castro had articulated this possibility, it was something they couldn't fathom but, you know, that was well before the Soviet Union collapse. So they they already had, you know, they were well aware, certainly Fidel Castro was well aware of um, the direction of travel. And I think that he was armed with Che Guevara's analysis. So it was not looking into a crystal ball and predicting the future. It was seeing those processes and those um, challenges that were, were leading to this outcome, which certainly Che Guevara had seen as inevitable.
1: Uh, it's fascinating how how... Both they were, both Che Guevara and also uh, uh, Fidel Castro himself. And uh, can you, well, you kind of took us all the way to the 1980s, but can you tell us what happened in 1991, special period? What happened to Cuba then? I mean, I guess they had to put in some austerity measures. What areas of, uh, let's say, in which areas of the economy they had to take some, uh, they had to make some cuts in their funding. Did yeah. they sacrifice their socialist ideals there?
0: Yeah, so so I mean, the, the interesting thing as well, because I'd always thought that, you know, the special period is sort of common knowledge. The special period is in response to the collapse of the Soviet bloc. But actually, it was announced 16 months prior in um, grandma newspaper, the um, daily newspaper of the Cuban Communist Party. They announced that the Soviets had failed to deliver uh, a contractually agreed delivery, whatever it was, and that um, this was going to create severe problems. And they were now announcing that this was a special period, right? This was a special period of, of economic problems. <laughs> and I think initially it was viewed as a short-term thing, but then it became, you know, an absolutely sustaining uh, modus operandi in Cuba, a long, long enduring modus operandi. Um, So the... The, the crisis happened, as I said, it was announced 16 months before the collapse of the Soviet bloc. Um, then the Soviet bloc collapsed. And so just to give you an example, Cuba was importing, I think in 1990 they imported 13 million tonnes of fuel from the the Soviet Union. In 91, that went down, or was it 92, that went down to 1 million. And by 93, it was 0 so, I mean, what economy, what country, what society can operate without oil? Yeah, um, it was incredibly challenging. How did they cope with that? Well, what little oil they had, you know, they they worked out what the priorities are, right? Hospitals and so on. Um, I mean, this is, this is, in a crisis like this is where actually state control over the economy becomes a great strength. It becomes, you know, they have leverage over what happens to resources. If you think just, I mean, this is not what we're talking about, but just think about COVID-19. When it first happened, many governments were um, totally, uh, had no control over the the private healthcare sector, the pharmaceutical sector, the producers of ventilators. You know, they had to negotiate prices, right? Even in the United States, uh, all the states had to come together and negotiate with private interest about the costs of ventilators because that's what happens when you, you know, go with the demand and supply market mechanism. So th- this is a benefit for Cuba that they control trade, They uh, the state controls trade, it controls distribution, it controls production. At this point in Cuba, a tiny proportion, 1.5% of people are self-employed, right? So, you know, what happen- what that means is if the state is employing most people, What it can do is decide that it's going to give lunch to state employees. So at least it knows that everyone in Cuba is getting that good meal. Now, I've already mentioned, I think, the ration at the beginning of this. So the Cubans used the ration to make sure that people had, um, you know, enough to survive. Now, the ration wasn't actually, um, I mean, in terms of, you know, looking at nutritional value, the ration could get people through about two and a half to three weeks of out of four in a month, right? So then they use the um, lunches in, in um, employment, in, through the employment, uh, state employment, to supplement that, and then various other mechanisms. Then the, the, the farmers markets, which I mentioned at the beginning that we used to go to, and you have to have a bag for them to pour the rice into. So the government, like, really focused. May, I mean, the first thing to say is they made a political decision And the political decision was, A, we will not uh, follow what's happened, the process that's happened in the USSR and Eastern Europe. We will not transition to capitalism. We will stick with the socialist system. And B, we absolutely have to prioritise the social well-being, or as we, you know, I've been calling it social justice for the population. So all of their resources went into maintaining this system, the ration system, Keeping people in employment. Now, if you think about the, I was talking about the dependency on, you know, on imports, and that includes inputs for production. So when you know you could have factories where there were no inputs. Now, you know, production had stopped, but people were staying on the payroll. Why? Partly because uh, you know it's a salary, but the salaries are low. But also they're getting all of those institutional benefits, so the the lunches, and and Workplaces in Cuba are very important as, as arenas for political mobilization, for having a say in national consultations and debates, which they had frequently. And in my book, I, I think I talk about at least eight that they've had you know national consultations on policy changes and so on. So they absolutely prioritise these things. Um, they compensated in the healthcare sector uh, for the lack of um, you know equipment by adding personnel. So it's quite extraordinary. In this decade of severe economic crisis, the number of, I mean, you know, it's in the book. I can't remember the exact statistics, but the number of doctors, dentists, nurses, um, people, old people's homes go up. I mean, it's absolutely the reverse of what you would expect to see in an economic crisis or austerity or a recession in any capitalist country. The other thing is, and I think I've got a graph in the book, is um, employment goes up as GDP goes down. And that's one of the mechanisms they were doing, using employment to protect people because they have this distribution system and so on. What did they do? I mean, on practical levels like transport, okay? So I've talked about how the um, import of of, uh, fuel and energy massively plummets to almost zero. So how do you deal with transport? Well... China gives Cuba 1.5 million bikes and then another 500,000 are assembled in Cuba. So this is a Caribbean population under the searing sun, very humid. You walk down the street, you're sweating. But now they're riding on bikes. They're riding all over Cuba. When we went out to Cuba in 1995, we took two mountain bikes from um from you know the UK and we were like yeah mountain bikes with gears these are these old they are on these old heavy old metal Chinese bikes some of them you know you have to wheel pedal backwards to (laughs) to break and yet we'd be riding around Havana or wherever and we'd still be passed by these you know, some old man on a on a bicycle would still go flying past us on our posh new uh, mountain bikes. Anyway, so, you know, they got people there. They did um, collective hitchhiking. So you'd go to a main, like a motorway or, you know, a expressway or whatever it was, and there would be someone in a yellow uniform, called it amarillo, which means yellow, and they would have a clipboard and you'd go and tell them where you were going. And any traffic that passed that had a red uh, license plate that means it's state owned, um traffic so lots of people have been given over the decades you know a car for their work and so on they would have to stop and they would work out which were the 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 hitchhikers who were going in the same direction so collective organized hitchhiking I mean loads of things like this that they they developed um just really inventive lots of people just hitched to work so you know that was really normal. Um, we, we hitched, as I said, we hitched around the island. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, just really, just and then also, you know, for example, they developed, um, they saw signs of child malnutrition or low birth weights. Immediately, they target that when they manage to get hold of vitamins, they target vitamins, special vitamins, or or whatever at that population. Um And then, you know, just much more like vigilance on people visiting their homes or the conditions people live in. but it was very difficult because a lot of the problems people faced were material problems, and the Cubans could not deal with those, so they used you know human power really um personnel to to deal with all of these problems. I mean, I remember in' ninety five or ninety six going to a school in Cuba, and the teacher showed us one empty textbook one empty textbook, and she said, this is all we have for the entire school next term. You know, it was really heartbreaking as well to to be there and see it, but they pulled through. And I think, you know, clearly that social justice factor has been important in the revolution. And if they had reneged on that at that point, they would have been reneging on the revolution. They would have lost support from the population. The population um, in general, I mean, people left, right? When... Um, just before, in fact, my sister was there, she went to a trip to Cuba in 94. And she was in Havana by the Malecon when there was this, this riot, this protest that took place, and then people left in rafts. And that was the first, um, the first sort of violent protest in since the revolution of 59. I mean, 94. Um, and she was there. And what was fascinating was that the protest was eventually policed by Cubans themselves, not by police officers. But, you know, people who heard about this disturbance and came to say, who's messing with the revolution? But Fidel Castro also turns up and there's footage in, in a few different documentaries about Fidel Castro. And, you know, he's he turned up and he said to all the police, there, I don't want a shot fired. No, we don't want anything to happen like that. And he sort of stands on a jeep and gives this speech. And you can see in the footage the really sort of taut, tense faces at the beginning. And by the time he's saying, you know, why are we in this situation? Because we've been left alone. And what do people do when they're alone? Yeah. And what do they need to resist to stay alive when they're alone? And people shout unity and courage. Yes, we need unity. We need And By then they were like, yeah, <laughs> Even the revolution, and it is you know, it's extraordinary, right? He still has that rapport even with the most uh discontented people in the most challenging period. I just want to say one other thing, um, because I'm not sure it comes up in any of your questions, but I do think it is very important that your listeners realise that Cuba is back in a situation that is comparable to the special period today, and the reason it's there. Is again externally imposed. So, this is the result of the Trump administration using adopting a maximum pressure strategy to really strangulate the Cuban revolution. And it, it the way it does that is by, for example, from 2019, threatening any shipping companies with massive fines if they take goods to Cuba, or if they take oil to Cuba, threatening shipping companies taking oil from Venezuela, which is a fraternal ally of Cuba to Venezuela. And then subsequently, um, more and more uh, measures, acts and sanctions. So in total, the Cubans calculate that 243 new sanctions, actions and measures were taken, coercive measures against Cuba, including, for example, the Cubans were sending medics around the the region and the world um, who have expertise in disease control. They were sending them to... Um uh countries in Latin America, and then you know the State Department would phone up the president and say, Oh, we don't advise that you accept the Cubans, it could work badly for you, you know, and these sorts of things that are going on behind the scenes. Uh, using their control over the international financial system, as nearly 90% of all international transactions happen in the dollar. The uh US Treasury has the right to say that no one can use dollars in trade with Cuba. So, you know, how does Cuba get even the medicines it needs? Um, you know, it's short of paracetamol, it's short of uh, antibiotics at the moment. How can it trade on the international uh, market when the dollar is prohibited? Part of the US blockade says, and this is a long standing thing, this is not a new measure by Trump any good which has more than 10% of its components produced by the US or a US subsidiary, cannot be sold to Cuba without a license. So I just wanted to flag up that Cuba is, you know, if you're listening to this thinking, well, that sounds really challenging for Cuba. Wow, how, how did they survive? They have actually been thrown back into that situation. Of course, it's not just the sanctions. It's COVID-19. They dealt with COVID-19 in the best way from an epidemiological perspective. They shut down their borders. But you know, because Cuba's Um, trade and production is limited by the US blockade, they are very dependent on tourism revenue. So when they shut their borders, which was the best thing to do to protect their population, they um, also massively lost revenue. So uh, the collapse in GDP between um, March, uh, from the beginning of COVID over the next year was like 13%. So if you think of when I talked about the special period, that was uh, 35%, but over three years. So you you are talking about an equivalent collapse of GDP. They have recently had terrible problems with energy supply once again, not because you know there's no one to sell it to them, but also uh, that's one aspect, but also largely because all of their equipment is so old and they can't get spare parts. They can't get maintenance. It's a problem of um, the money but also the equipment um, which you know they need to buy internationally and, and is subject to sanctions. And Nobody really wants to face the kind of um, retribution that they'll get from OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Controls of the US Treasury and, and just political pressure from the US more generally.
1: Well, I'm myself from Iran so I have like first-hand experience what economic sanctions could be like. I've, uh, I've, I've not been living there for about 10 years, but I recently went back a few months ago and I did see how much the country has become, uh, has, how much sanctions have kind of impoverished the country. But again, look, Iran has not even remotely been as much affected as Cuba in terms of its uh, economic sanctions. And the funny thing is that a lot of people tend to think of when you hear the word economic sanction, they, to them it's just a political resolution that is somehow passed as in the United Nations or somewhere. But it really affects every single aspect of ordinary people's lives in that country, which is affected by these sanctions.
0: Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, when there were sanctions against Iraq in the, um, it was the nineteen nineties, wasn't it? Yeah, the UNICEF and other bodies calculated that one hundred and fifty children died every day as a direct result of those sanctions. Um, you know, and then there are bodies that have come out, I think the American World Health Association and others who have said, you know, an amnesty have they have written about the impact of sanctions on Cuba. And many people look at Cuba, and they don't see that devastation. So they it kind of undermines the argument that sanctions kill, you know, well, Cubans are doing all right. But actually, it is only because they have you know, a socialist system that prioritizes well-being, that they've been able to avoid that kind of um, human cost of sanctions. What we saw during COVID is their capacity to protect the population was diminished. Um, So I'll give you one example. First of all, when they, you know, the beginning of COVID, they could see that this was a respiratory Disease and, you know, um, medical ventilators for lungs were going to be really important. So they contacted the Swiss company that had previously sold them medical ventilators. But, of course, in the rush of COVID to control resources that I talked about before, um, the Swiss company, two Swiss companies had been bought up by a U.S. company and so could no longer said, no, we can't sell these. And um, they said, well, can you give us spare parts for the ones we have that, are, you know, need fixing? No, we can't do that right? So, you know, Cuba's left without medical ventilators. And then subsequently, um, incredibly, they managed, not incredibly, if you know the history of Cuba's biotech sector, and there's a whole chapter in the book about it, but they managed to develop five potential COVID-19 vaccines. um, And they, uh, they were the only country in the whole of Latin America and the Caribbean to be able to develop vaccines. Those are now rolled out. But the rolling out the vaccination was first of all the production of the vaccine the mass production was held up because it needed one reagent that is um, mainly produced by a u.s company yeah and so they had to find it somewhere else in in the adequate quantities or find others you know buyers who could get it for them and it's just so complicated once they then had the capacity to industrially produce this vaccine to to meet their needs for the whole population they didn't have syringes. syringe Plastic, you know, they're probably incredibly cheap to produce. But it just so happens that the major syringe producers are dominated by US companies, or they share a laboratory with a US company. You know, I think there was one company from another um, country, but it shares a laboratory with US, you know, so that so they don't want to risk it. So they can't do it. So actually, the solidarity movement that there is a worldwide movement in solidarity with Cuba against these sanctions. They had to find millions of sanctions, raise money and purchase, and literally send on boats to Cuba millions of, of syringes. So the the rollout, the vaccine rollout was delayed. That was when the surge took place, which was, you know, the early summer of um 2021. And then you had the violent protest of 11th of July, 2021, which was the second, only the second in 60 years, but the second violent protest that had taken place, this time nationally. I was in Cuba on that day um, when it happened. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, because it wasn't nearly as widespread as, as uh, you know, media
1: it was. <laughs> yeah.
0: I couldn't believe the media reporting when I, um, when I saw what was, I mean, there was incredible manipulation, but we don't need to talk about that yet. I don't know if it's a question you've got coming up. But I'm just saying, you know, that there, there were people who undoubtedly um, ha- would have had a better chance of surviving if they had the vaccine, they couldn't get the vaccine because the rollout was delayed. And that was, again, a, an impact of sanctions.
1: Well, you you briefly touched upon medical internationalism. I guess it was there was there was. Uh... People saw this fascinating image of Cuban doctors coming to Europe to help uh, Europe that has been affected, had been affected by COVID-19. Uh, just on that, uh, Cuba made huge improvements and progress in biotechnology and also renewable energy. And you do have a chapter in the book uh, on those improvements, despite the fact that they were under crippling sanctions. So, and, and there is this famous speech by Fidel Castro that you talk about in the book, which is called History Will Absolve Me, where he talks about electricity. Considers electricity to be a right, a human right. Can you talk briefly about their uh, progress in biotechnology and renewable energy?
0: Yeah. So the speech by Fidel Castro was his uh, a, an adaptation, essentially, of his court defense speech after the attack on the Moncada barracks in 1953, and that is, you know, one of the documents that became like the program of the uh, movement for the 26th of July which I talked about so when I talked about they had the choice to either uh, fulfill the program be consistent with the program be committed to it and that would lead them into conflict with capitalist class in 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 Cuba and the United States or they would have to compromise on that program right in order to be acceptable to Washington and that was the choice they faced so um you know, and and extraordinary, yes, Uh, electricity is a human right, Uh, education is a human right, housing is a human right, employment and so on. And um, I would say that they've been broadly consistent with that within, you know, the resource constraints that Cuba has. I think something like 5% of the Cuban population remain outside of the national grid and without electricity. So you're talking about people who live in the most mountainous areas and um, rural areas, and um, the revolution has done a lot. I mean, they um, extended the national grid, and then for the population in this period, from this period, the post-2000 energy revolution – uh, one of the biggest projects of that was to take renewable energy supply sources to rural Cubans, but there's still a few. So just to explain about that, I mean, I talked about the special period and one of the biggest impacts of the special period comes from the um, the lack of access or the lack of supply of fuel or energy, right? And so Cuba is extraordinarily vulnerable in terms of its energy supply. Um in the subsequent period, so post 2000, you have a Bush government uh, in the United States and, you know, it's lining up its um, uh, rogue states was the term, I think, at that time. Um, and it has, you know, threatened, um, it's entered Afghanistan and, and, and threatening Iraq and it's going to go into Iraq. But in between, they turn on Cuba. Right. And actually, that's linked to the biotech sector because they start saying, oh, Cuba, ha- Cuba is producing biological weapons, which there was no evidence of. And even, you know, um, Colin Power had to come out and reverse it. No, we're just saying they have the capacity if they were to. So, you know, and, and, and former President Carter went to Cuba and toured the laboratories and said, There's, this is rubbish. No one believes it. That sort of thing. <laughs> Not in those words. So, um, you know, what happened was at that point, Cuba had. um problems of its electricity supply we had these you know these big old diesel guzzlers from the soviet union uh very hard to to maintain they're collapsing and it was really clear that they were very vulnerable i mean lots of people not lots of people a few people have written about the what's called the energy revolution in cuba but and they've talked about the um motivation so it's you know saving energy saving money uh, a commitment to environmental issues, you know, that which is at, absolutely embedded in the Cuban Constitution, sustainable development, and and so on. But the issue that's missed is the national security issue. Which again, if we go back to my two framing of two factors, is sovereignty. Um, and they were aware that, you know, as one, the president of the the NGO Cuba Solar said to me, with seven bombs, they could have eliminated the whole electricity supply of Cuba. Because it was essentially all coming from seven big um, old Soviet power generators. So in this period now, um, I should say that this they can get to this point because they're recovering from the special period. New relations are, um, are, there's the embrace with Venezuela under Hugo Chavez. And the first thing that happens is they carry out this barter exchange. So Cuba, what does Cuba have a surplus of? medical professionals so it sent. you know what does venezuela need medical professionals because they are going through the same process as the early 1960s they have a program their revolutionary government with a program uh based on social welfare but they need the doctors right so instead of them spending seven years training these doctors cuba can send doctors to venezuela and um, to go and treat these populations in the rural, uh, in the, not rural, in the, in the barrios, yeah, the poor neighborhoods that have never seen a doctor before, and the rural areas, and Venezuela can send oil to Cuba. So Cuba's oil problem starts to be solved, but then they have these problems with the, the old equipment, maintenance, and so on. So they, um, this, the economic situation is improving, you have a shift to tourism, and uh, the expansion is incredible, actually, how Cuba manages to diversify its international and trading relations very quickly after the collapse of the Soviet bloc. Um, and they um, decide, you know, they have their building reserves, they're building funds, the economic situation has improved, and they decide to... Uh, go off and purchase, and it all has to be done under the radar of the United States, you know, in secret negotiations until it's finally, the equipment's finally arrived in Cuba. They go off and buy hundreds of um, very energy efficient electro generators, right, that they can place all around the country. And these electro generators um, mean Cuba's much, much less vulnerable to, you know, collapse of its energy system or bombing or whatever it was, which was a prospect because of that Bush administration. But it also they are also much more conducive to a shift to renewable energies because with renewable energies you need generators that are localized, yeah, so close to the sources so they this was the energy that was one aspect of the energy revolution it was announced basically in two thousand and before they were talking about it and 2005 dawned as the year of the energy revolution and there were many aspects of it one was this as energy supplies but the other was for example they got this group of young people who had been outside work and employment they were enrolled in uh, as social workers a very different concept of social workers than most of us will have and they um, were given the task of knocking on every door in cuba and replacing, <coughs> excuse me, replacing every single um, inefi- inefficient uh, bulb with new energy-saving bulbs. So in six months, every bulb in uh, in Cuba had been changed, and Cuba became the first country in the world to complete that shift.
1: Fascinating. So that's the kind of
0: capacity you can do when you can mobilize, you know, yeah. national
1: resources. Yeah yeah it's fascinating they
0: then while the young people were there changing the bulbs they took an inventory of what other electro domestic equipment so fridges televisions uh, not televisions in this sense, uh, fridges and rice cookers pressure cookers those sorts of things um and then they came back and they swapped that equipment so they had you know lots of people because the cubans are m- amazing at keeping old equipment running out of necessity yes but it's you know, it's a lot less wasteful, too. So lots of them had, you know, either amazingly old, you know, U.S. fridges or uh, old Soviet fridges. that was any energy guzzling machines. And they were replaced with equipment that mas- mostly came from China, much more energy efficient. And they had a schema so that depending on your income, you would pay for it in very small installments over a certain period um, so it was heavily subsidized and massively reduced Cuba's um, energy consumption. And there were other measures. A lot of the energy revolution was also about education, uh, educating the population um, about the need to conserve energy. Now, I also mentioned there was the introduction of renewable energies. The Cuban government has a commitment to shift to renewable energies yeah they actually have a target which um isn't is not particularly ambitious it's ambitious from where they are with their limited resources but it's not ambitious compared to other caribbean countries their neighbors who have higher much higher percent of their energy matrix is renewables but the political will is there and if cuba had the capacity um The finance, the financial resources to import this equipment, they would do that. I'm I'm quite sure they would do it as quickly as possible. But, you know, doing something like replacing your whole transport fleet is extraordinarily expensive. So that's why they've gone first for the residential um, electrodomestic equipment and that sort of bulbs and that sort of stuff. But the, the, the political commitment is there. It is, you know, it's part of their national plan to increase um the percentage of production from of energy consumption for to, to be from renewables. I just think it's a terrible shame because, you know, I'm sure that Cuba would be world leading in this area because of the political commitment if it had the opportunity, which is being obstructed because of those sanctions and the and the resource challenges that they have cuba um actually finds it hard to access green funds yeah so um, multilateral development banks cuba can't join them because the u.s threatens to withdraw its money and funding and so on and um you know even they they have recently just got some funding through the un for um Climate change adaptation, but that was an that was an incredible achievement, incredible struggle, and even the council of the the body, um, the the U.S. representatives were trying to block that. So it's very difficult for Cuba. There's a lot of money being swashed around the world, you know, being offered to developing countries. A lot of it disguises aid, but actually, you know, it leads to more debt and all the rest of it. But Cuba doesn't even have access to that. So. Um, is very difficult for the Cubans, but they have very good political commitment. Mm.
1: Uh, Let's talk about more contemporary Cuba. What happened to Cuba under Raul Castro's government? Did he make any drastic changes? Did he depart from the uh, old established models?
0: Yeah, so I remember when Raul came, um, took over from his father. I mean, there were two lines. One is he's there because he's his brother and this is a dynasty, which was... I mean, just the, a cursory look at a children's textbook, history book, would tell you that was rubbish. I mean, he was involved from the beginning. He, um, in many ways, had taken initiatives, like during the revolutionary struggle. He set up the second front. He was running what was called the second front, where they set up almost like a model of what the revolutionary state would look like. So they had peasant control and peasant councils, and, and they you know, redistributed land and, and had education and... and and healthcare and stuff for the local residents so i mean he has very much the credentials to be one of um to to be the president of the council of state which is what the title was and um, when he that was one of the, the lines the other line from you know external commentators was that he was a reformer and that he would embrace uh capitalism return cuba to capitalism and um he took certain measures. Now, the, the circumstances in Cuba had changed things, this economic situation. If you look at the period when he took over, they had relatively high economic growth, going up to nearly 13 percent um, in that period. And, you know, they had the relationship with Venezuela. They were now had 30,000 medical professionals in Venezuela. They were being paid for those um, paid in oil and, and also in um, in money, so revenue. so that was very good. They were extending. This is the the sort of pink tide period in Latin America. They had sent medical professionals to other countries in Latin America. Uh, it became its their biggest earner. Uh, tourism was going up and so on, and um, so they had they had in a sense, a cushion to be able to deal with some of the longstanding structural problems that Cuba faces. I mentioned very early on about low productivity. Um, they had you know, kept people through the special period, they kept people in work, even when they weren't um, producing, because it was a, a cushion, it was a political decision, not an economic um, one, not driven by economic rationality, but by a social and political rationality. So they were now in a position to to tackle some of those uh, structural weaknesses, and and that was one of the first measures that they did was in relation to employment. They announced that we have like a million people who are uh, not contributing in the workplace. They're not they're not productive, and we would like to take them and move them out of the state sector. And we're going to give them options. They can go elsewhere. They can go into agriculture or construction where people are needed or they can set up as um, uh, self-employed in self-employed things, but they'd have to register and they have to pay taxes and that will contribute. Um, and, the you know, it will save the state a lot of money. We're paying in salaries without the need. Uh, they didn't have the same requirements to keep people employed, you know, as they had to protect them in the special period. So that was one of the early measures, but also things like um, a lot of land, state-owned land, was lying idle. It wasn't being used, so they distributed that land in what's called usufruct. So they allow families, uh, collectives, to take the land. They have two years to get it productive, um, and once they do, they um, have to sign a contract with the either the local cooperative or the state in some form, some institutional form, the Ministry of Agriculture, to sell a proportion of what they. Um, have produced to the state and that will go to the rationing system and the local schools and so on and they can sell the rest in local markets so if they don't produce the land is taken off them but they don't have to pay rent they can get credit for tools and seeds and all the rest of it so that was another measure and then um you know more measures were taken that uh that people will have read about they um had a uh, they had eliminated the private market in housing sales and car sales Um that had been I mean people were saying oh when Raoul reintroduced it they were saying oh the first time since the revolution actually it had been in place in the ninety briefly in the ninety early nineteen eighties. And so they opened up the market for housing, you know, private housing sales. But they still have a restriction. So one in one Cuban can't own more than two houses, and they have to be like countryside and city, or a beach and city, or beach and countryside. And so they still have restrictions on the accumulation of of private um, property and the accumulation. Uh, not wealth. Private property is is restricted, so people can set up a business, but they're limited in how many businesses. And I mean, gradually, um, since uh, Miguel Diaz Canal, because of the rather desperate economic situation, they have removed some of those constraints. So they had constraints on how many employees a private business owner could have, and they've removed. You know, they've extended those and removed those. Um, and I just think that what they're trying to do is is find mechanisms. As I said, Cuba can't get access to international multilateral development banks and so on. So they have to get income, you know, they have to get revenue, they have to get money into the country in in other ways. And they don't want, they wouldn't have a, a stock exchange, a bond market, that would make them extremely susceptible um, to speculators, uh, decapitalization, and so on. So, the mechanisms they have are essentially foreign direct investment. So, that is, you know, when you are making a one to one a negotiation with a foreign business yeah and you can very much they very much control the conditions for the workers for the environment and so on so uh, businesses you know capitalist companies complain that cuba is a really hard place to do business because they have very demanding set of requirements for who can do business and and how their workers are treated and and what pollution is is generated and so on so the other mechanism for getting um money in is through uh, remittances and the the you know the mechanism for encouraging that is to be has been allowing cubans to, to set up their own businesses and then their relatives in the united states in spain in britain wherever they are, uh, are sending money which can then be invested in these businesses it also takes a lot of responsibility off the state you know they've they've um been lots of discourse about like why do we have to run every cafeteria so i mean and it is in the nature of those sorts of things yeah the um opening up the economy to non they call it non-state entities because they could be cooperatives they could be self-employment or they could be these small businesses which have only just very recently been legally recognized um they you know i was saying. um so they are all in sort of uh, as, how would you call it marginal areas of the economy. They are not strategic areas of the economy. They have said clearly we are not opening up our healthcare uh, sector, our education sector, or even um, you know like sugar production, um, the nickel mining. Those will all remain steadfastly in state hands. We'll have to see how it goes. I mean, they, that doesn't mean they won't take investment. There is foreign investment in the nickel industry but the same with biotechnology which you asked me to mention i mean there's a whole chapter on how it's really i call it the curious case of cuba's biotech sector because it's extraordinary how this caribbean island that you know six decades ago had a, a extraordinarily high illiteracy rate and um in january 1960 one year after they seized power fidel Castro goes to the academy of sciences and says <laughs> Cuba will be a country of people of science, you know, we need good in, in intellectual people to, to sow their to use their intelligence for social good. And you know, they have these initial investments in health and education, um, universalizing it. So it's free access to everyone. So you can be as well educated in the Cuban mountain and Cuban coast as you can in Havana. And that's something they've been extraordinary at. And uh, you can see that if you look at like infant mortality statistics, they are you know um the same or better in rural areas which is not something you usually see yeah in developing countries um so they've been extraordinary but then always pushing for more pushing for more so once they um, or in parallel with developing this universal you know level of education they raise the standards they also invest in science and technology from very early on i've just had a paper published actually in it's open access it's um Uh, It's about Che Guevara's uh, promotion of science and technology um, very early on. And then Fidel Castro takes that up as well. And they uh, have a body that's set up in 1965 uh, to promote science and technology. And one aspect of that is medical science. So, of course, biotechnology doesn't develop globally until 1976. You have the first biotech company and it's very much set up with... um, with a uh, an investor, so it was set up very much catered for making money. Let's say, yeah, it's a, it's something for the Nasdaq, high risk stock exchange, um, and then the Cubans. So that's seventy six. The next one was nineteen eighty in the United States. So four years later, the Cubans set up their biological front to develop this sector in nineteen eighty one, extraordinarily early. And they have their first um, achievements almost straight away. So uh, they come up with a, um, a, a dengue, um, uh, something for dengue when they have a, a sudden virulous outbreak of, of dengue fever. And then they develop a meningitis B vaccine, 1988, only a few years later, a team of scientists led by a woman. Concepcion Campa worked tirelessly for six years or something. Come up with the world's first meningitis B vaccine, and they have many world firsts that that follow after that, and many public health achievements. World first, so the first country in the world to eliminate mother to child HIV transmission, and um, they are the first country now to have vaccinated their child population against COVID nineteen from two up. They are now in the f- finishing. Um, uh, clinical trials for a COVID vaccine for babies uh, and from newborns to two. And um, they, you know, have this incredible lung cancer immunotherapy, which has been used by um, tens of thousands of people around the world. And is currently under clinical trial in the United States by Roswell Park Cancer Institute, which they're developing. And I talk about that example quite a lot in the book. Um, and so they have, you know, um, in the when I wrote the book, I think it was 10 gold medals from the World Intellectual Property Organization. I think now they've got 12 or more because they recognition of the covid vaccines. So, yeah, it's really phenomenal. They are um, a global powerhouse in biotechnology. Despite all of these things that we've been talking about, what happened in the 1990s was that these biotech. Um, institutions, research and development institutions had just been set up or were in the process of being set up. In the case of the Centre for Molecular Immunology that produced that incredible lung cancer vaccine, they were building the new institute. They just had the columns on the outside when the special period happened. And, you know, I spoke to the guy who was the director of that centre. He said, we just assumed that would be it. And, And Fidel Castro came along and said, no, no, no. Now we need to project we really need to invest in this, so they had three protected areas during the special period. one was food production for obvious reasons, the other was tourism opening up to tourism as a new source of um revenue, and then the third was biotechnology an incredible risk if you think that this is just the nineteen nineties and the biotech sector certainly hadn't developed as far as I know in Australia or Britain at that point so um so incredible vision and it has given them this capacity now the fascinating thing and i talk a lot about it, about it in the book what's unique about the cuban biotech sector it is set up to meet the public health demands of the cuban population and unlike the model you know i said the first biotech company was set up with private capital with an investor a biochemist and a and an investor um, and that became the model for biotechnology And in Cuba, it's completely the opposite. It's 100% state-owned, 100% percent state finance. They set it up in the state. There's no private uh, speculators or or, um, investors. So, you know, they can really work on the products that are needed and not the products that are saleable or profitable. And it has produced extraordinary results.
1: Uh, let me ask you one final question. I'm going to play the devil's advocate here to talk about Cuba's political system. Is uh, there have been a lot of changes in Cuba? Lots of great initiatives put into place. But what is the role of people? Do they have a voice in there uh, in these political decisions, or is it just one man deciding what others must do? And uh, there are reports, and I don't really have a lot of confidence in the media, but anyway, there are reports about human rights violation. So, what is this the political freedom like in Cuba?
0: Yeah. So I mean, if you're an opponent of the Cuban Revolution and there are many, yeah. So whether you're a Cuban American or you know, part of the the million elite who left, or you're the US establishment, and Cuba is a terrible threat of a good example to the rest of Latin America imagine what would happen if others you know and there were attempts in all of those countries in Latin America to follow the Cuban example so what can you attack Cuba for well you can't really attack it on the basis of uh, the social well-being of its population right because it has better statistics than the United States in terms of many uh, key indicators for health and education right So um, what can you attack it for? Art and culture? No, Cuba has vibrant art and culture. It's well-leading. It's Cuban artists are known all over the world, right? So what can we attack Cuba for? Well, the issue of uh, democracy and freedom and human rights. They are absolute tools for attacking Cuba. And actually, they entered the US rhetoric um, in the um, late 70s under Carter. So if you look at the... The original motivations for implementing the U.S. blockade of Cuba, for um, trying to achieve Cuba's isolation through the Organization of American States, putting pressure on all Latin American countries to break diplomatic and trade relations with Cuba, Uh, there's never a concern of human rights. This is something that's built in much later um, into the, the sort of toolkit to attack Cuba. OK, so we can recognise the politicisation. We can recognise that the United States Congress overtly approves 20 million dollars of funding for what they call democracy promotion um, programmes. Right. That's what's overtly approved every year. Now, in a country as poor as Cuba, that's a lot of money, right? Now, the fact is, most of it doesn't get into the into Cuba because, you know, there is a whole apparatus of uh, democracy promoters, yeah, who are actually promoting their own standard of living, and a lot of that money ends up being siphoned into their uh, to to private interests. But I mean, it's it's a it's a profession, right? It's a career, yeah. Um, but, you know, they they can't call these regime change programs, but the Cubans do. They say these are regime change programs. So, I mean, we can accept all of that, but we also have to inquire about the the, the, the system in Cuba in terms of democracy, representation, participation, and so on. So the first thing I think is really important to point out is before 1959, or or, or let's say by today, the Cubans have known more different types of political systems, governance systems than most populations, right? Because they've had uh, semi-colonized, well, they've had, if you go back to just the end of the 19th century, they had colonization, they've had semi-colonization or, uh, you know, sort of imperialism. They've had liberal democracy. They've had dictatorship. Um, they've had a sort of popularist authoritarianism. And then they get revolutionary government. Then they get more institutionalized, formalized uh, um system. So in 19, the revolution was 1959, They sort of resurrected the Constitution, which I mentioned from 1940. Um, But they didn't. uh, And they had more informal mechanisms of um, representation and participation. So I'm saying informal, but they were actually formal. So they the government very quickly, in the first two years, or three years set up what they call institute and organisations of the masses, so there were the women's federation, the Cuban um, working, the trade unions which had had already existed, um, but were changed in in, uh, in form and and objectives and, and stuff. They had um, street committees were set up. They have um, you you know university students already had representation, but they made those uh, massive, um, and they have small farmers association they have i mean i may have missed some right because there are many different or what they call organizations of the masses they usually have you know 90 something percent of whatever that sector is um joining up and they meet regularly they have representations but they also have um representation in parliament so i haven't got to parliament yet because this is the way that the system was run and local Uh, councils and so on. Now, they formalise their institutional process of elections from 1976 with the first new constitution that the revolutionary government um, brings in. And that already, by the way, has guarantees and protections or responsibilities for the state and society to protect the environment, making it one of the first constitutions in the world to do so. But this this is known as the system of people's power, and they have three levels. It has three levels initially. They have recently, fairly recently, eliminated one of the levels. But the levels that they have is the municipal level. So in Britain, we call that a borough. So, you know, that's um, a smaller uh, organisational, administrative entity. And people in the borough, they vote for their street committees and then they vote for their ward, which is a few streets, and then they vote for the municipal assembly. So they vote from residents, among residents, um, for rotating you know, representation. And they have an assembly in each municipality. That assembly then voted for um, who is going to go into the provincial assembly. So just to give you an idea of numbers, there was, for most of the revolution, 14 provinces in Cuba. They've added two recently, Artemisa and Mayabeque. Um, but 14 provinces. And then from the provincial assembly, people are voted into the national assembly. Right. So there's a few things I want to say about that. Just to describe the National Assembly, you're talking about something over 600 representatives or delegates in the National Assembly. Roughly half of those have come up through that neighbourhood system, been elected up through, you know, local people. They have to live there. They know each other and so on. They've come up through that system. The other um, half have come up through the system of organisations of the masses. So you have seats in Parliament that are put aside for students from the university, right? You have seats in parliament that are from representatives of ANAP, the small farmers. You have tobacco workers. You have, you know, everyone is represented there and there may be um, uh, other people invited who are like, you know, uh, there because they're international, um, internationally-owned internationally artists and, and so on and so forth. Religious representation is there. So that's the National Assembly. It's the highest decision-making body in Cuba. The National Assembly then elects the council of uh, this is it's changed slightly but the council of state which then elects the president so on the one hand we have fidel castro being described throughout this period as a dictator on the other hand he has had to go through this electoral system right all the way up and uh, being elected to the next system and so on the other hand he's the most voted <laughs> head of state probably in the world now I remember being dubious about this and asking Cubans, "Well, are you telling me that if I was, you know, lived in the same area as Fidel, I could stand against him?" And I remember one Cuban friend saying, "Well, you could, but I wouldn't vote for you because we vote on the basis of merit." And really, you know. <laughs> Who can be described as having sacrificed more, fought harder, and and so on for for the Cuban people than than this um, person? So it might all sound very romantic. I have to say that it is like taking everything that we think we know about democracy and turning it on its head. And the shortcut answer to is this democratic? Is this if you only consider the multi? party which is often not multi-parties is often a two party uh, system of political representation where you go and vote for an mp who you may not know who may not actually be from your area but that's the constituency they they are uh, seeking election for who are a professional paid um, politician And then there is very little accountability, uh, very little right to recall it if it exists. Um, It's only just been introduced in Britain. So for most of the period, it didn't. Well, it did in Cuba. Um, And, you know, they have then split loyalties, or not really split, because their main loyalty is to the party and the party line, right? So if you regard that, we we call it, you know, as multi-party liberal democracy. If you regard that as the only... Model for to, to represent democracy, then of course you look at Cuba you, in, you see it's not there and you conclude that they're not democratic, but you know if we have a broader um conceptualization of what democracy is um, going back maybe to the roots of people's power and we think about how do people affect the uh, their lives and the policies, how do they influence the policies that shape um, their country and their development then I think. Cuba is a far more interesting case. So the other really key elements I touched on this to point out sort of principles of the system is, first of all, there are no they are not um, professional politicians in Cuba. So if you work in a tobacco factory, and you are elected then your employment, and this is what again, one of the benefits of having state employment, the state can make this decision, make this regulation, that your employment has to give you the days off that you need to do your political work. Yeah. Um, but there is no material incentive for becoming a politician, you don't become a politician because you're going to get rich. Yeah, And I think that is really quite decisive. The second thing is the right to recall, which has always existed with this system in Cuba. So if, um, you know, one third of the constituents who voted for you, uh, believe you're not doing an adequate job, and you have to at least every six months, render accounts, as they call it, you have to go back to your constituents and say what you've done. um, And what's happened with the you know, they, they make demands on you and you follow these through and what what's been the results. So at least every six months, that's a legal requirement. And if they're not satisfied, you can be recalled. There are other things about the elections. So there is no advertising allowed during these elections. During the elections, um, every candidate can just have a one, an A4 sheet of paper that says, you know, their name, it lists the um, organisations that they're members of, and then it has a blurb, as we call it, about why they should be elected. And it's usually based on what they've done for their community or their country. So it might say something like, in the 1980s, I was an internationalist. I went to Angola to fight against the apartheid regime of South Africa. Um, I subsequently helped to organise a campaign in the community to get women over 50 to go for mammograms. Um, I organised, you know, a local football team or I picked up, uh, you know, an effort to pick up um, metals to be recycled or whatever it is. These are the kind of things that people are advertising. Now, the really big crux of this uh, whole system is the question of the Communist Party and what their role is in the system. So do you have to be a member of the Communist Party to be elected? No. But not only that, the Communist Party doesn't stand in elections. So when I say that this is not a multi-party system, it's not actually a party system. Yeah. So these are people who may or may not be members of the Communist Party. So when on their A4 sheet, it may say I'm a member of the Communist Party. I'm also a member of my street committee. I'm a member of the Women's Federation. I might be a member of some cultural association or something like that. But um you, the, the Communist Party doesn't stand in the elections, so people aren't elected on the basis of their uh, membership of the Communist Party. Now, um, people assume that you know the, the final makeup of the National Assembly will be full of Communist Party members. To what, on the one hand, that makes sense because to be a member of the Communist Party is very politically demanding. People have to be the hardest workers. They have to do all this stuff, right? And uh, advocating for people in their community and resolving problems without payment and after work and despite caring responsibilities. So you would expect that those are the people who are most committed to representing their community. But actually, if you read um, or you look at the statistics of how many members of the National Assembly are Communist Party members, it has been fairly low, and they are currently trying to increase the number of um, uh, people who are in the National Assembly who are also Communist Party members. So they don't consider it high enough. I mean, there are incredible statistics. Cuba has, I think the current National Assembly has 53% of members are women, which makes it the second highest in the world, after Rwanda, I believe, which is interesting, And they also have a very high proportion who are, you know, under 30. Um, So a very youthful layer of of leadership there. And um, they also always report on and try to improve the percentage of non-white Cubans, so black and mixed Cubans um, in the National Assembly. And I believe it's now 40-something percent. And, you know, again, Raul in his last speech in the National Assembly said, this is an improvement, but we, you know, we're not yet satisfied. We have to work on this. Cuba is currently going um, through its elections uh, right now in these days through that, that start of that process. So starting off with the local street committee elections. And so anyone who's interested, you know, just um, just try and uh, you can you can find the Cuban channels on on social media by Cuba Debate and other channels. And you can see the process. They report on it daily, you know, and the uh, leadership is going around the country and seeing the electoral process. The ballot boxes in Cuba are famously guarded by children under the, um, you know, the notion that children are um, not corruptible. Um, so that's another a, a nice touch for the, the Cuban democratic it system. Is,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean I mean just last thing to mention so this this question so that's one form of democracy the the we have the electoral system representation decisions are made it's the highest decision making body and all big policies have to be voted there um but the uh, and they also have commissions that work on 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 proposals and so on permanent permissions uh, pr- permanent commissions and the other aspect is the organizations of the masses. But another key question in terms of democracy is these national consultations that they've had. So um, they are, you know, it's quite—it's ha- very hard from, for those of us who are sort of slightly cynical about democracy and policy making and how it happens in our own countries. It's quite hard to get your head around how this really happens in Cuba. But, for example, when, the, when Raul introduced something called the Guidelines for Updating the Social and, Political, uh, Social and Economic Policy of the Cuban Communist Party in the state in 2011, this was the, the document that embedded the reforms that he subsequently introduced, which I, I was talking about some of them. And that document was produced in draft form and it was distributed to everybody in the country I mean everybody even those rural mountains I talked about they had access to this document and not only that they were given time to read it and then assemblies were organized in every workplace in every street in every school and university college and so on to discuss uh, for people to give an- anonymized feedback on these documents and um You know, there are statistics in the book, but it was like 700, I don't know, what was it, Um, 50,000 proposals when they'd all been lumped together. I mean, millions of people are participating. The vast majority of the population is participating in these consultations. They collated all of these suggestions and they subsequently changed 68% of the, the guidelines on the basis of that public consultation. Um, You know, and there are other examples. Recently, they had a document called "Conceptualizing Cuban Socialism, which is something they've never done before. They never had a formal, you know, conceptualization. I think this is to do with the transition from the veteran generation to a new generation and having, you know, the the, the sort of essence of of what Cuban socialism is embedded in a document. And after a consultation with um, hundreds of thousands of Cubans, 98% of that document was changed. So what we can see, this is not a paper exercise. This is not a PR stunt. This is um, actually creating forums in which people can affect change. Now, many of the things that they will complain about and they will ask to be changed uh, have um, are, are issues of material resources. And, you know, Cuba is obviously extremely limited in how it can address those issues at this moment.
1: Yeah, yeah, because of the sanctions. Uh, Dr. Helen Yaffe, this has been an amazing eye-opening interview for me. Uh, I've read the book, but talking to you, it was a completely different thing. And I do I do strongly recommend uh, to our listeners to pick up the book because as you, we, you kind of mentioned throughout the interview, there's a lot of useful statistics that can really put things into perspective. And also disabuse us of uh, all those misconceptions and rumors that we hear about uh, Cuba. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for the interview. I've enjoyed it. I can't believe we've been going for two hours.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we should <go> talk more. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Okay. Thanks a lot.